I invite you to take God's Word and find Mark chapter 1 at this time, Mark chapter 1. And as you're turning there, uh, I just want to highlight a couple things. If you haven't noticed, we have been publishing a monthly news update, and uh, we tried to email this out as well. But uh, if, 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 you, if you haven't, please do pick up one of these July updates because it talks about some things that are going on in our church and things that we are planning, and also, of course, a list of needs that, uh, we, that could be met by some of you. Also, I want to highlight a special conference that actually we are hosting, and it is an evangelism and creation conference. We have, we're having a a uh, very skilled and reputable evangelist come and teach us about evangelism. And also uh, Aaron, who was the one that spawned this project, uh, was able to secure a, a speaker who's an expert in creationism. And so that's going to be July 29th. If you're in town, please come. Please come and learn. Be equipped and encouraged by these things so that we could fulfill our mission of evangelizing the lost and equipping the saints for the work of service. Now, let's turn our attention to the exposition of the Word of God in Mark chapter 1. There are really only two things that leave this world, yet will also last forever. They are the Word of God and the souls of men. Everything else will perish. And so wise is the one who invests his or her life in these two. Wisest is the one who sows the good seed of the word into the soil of the human heart. This is the core of all effective ministry. It's always pouring out the word into the souls of men and women. It's the goal of every true pastor or elder with the flock. It's the goal of every genuine evangelist with the lost. It's the goal of every loving parent with their children. And in general, it is the goal of everyone who professes the name of Christ, which again is to deposit the eternal word of life into the souls of men that gives birth to new everlasting life. Pastors who do not feed the flock with the word of God are derelict shepherds. So-called evangelists who fail to evangelize with the word are false witnesses. Fathers and mothers who shirk the responsibility to instruct their children with the word to someone else are negligent parents. And Christians who refuse to make disciples with the word are phonies. And so if you are an aspiring elder, a gifted evangelist, a parent, a grandparent, a professing believer, your goal must be focused on the primacy of sharing the word. Again, I say loud and clear, it is the core. It is the foundation, the essence, the nucleus of all effective ministry. And this is precisely what we see in Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 1 
verses 14 and 15. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. We are going to read that together as soon as I find it. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand, Repent and believe in the gospel. Here we read in a summarized, condensed form. Listen, this is important. Here we read in a summarized, condensed form what was the core, integral, primary ministry of Jesus. It was preaching. It turns out that my old Baptist pastor was right all along. God only had one son, and he made him a preacher. And this Lord's Day, we're going to take an in-depth look at how the best preacher ever lived preached. Before we see how he preached, we must deal with the stage. How did Mark set the stage for Jesus' ministry? In verse 14, he says, After John the Baptist had been taken into custody... Now, this event will be explained more in detail when we get to chapter 6, but to briefly summarize, John the Baptist was incarcerated for rebuking Herod Antipas over his incestuous marriage to his niece, Herodias. He had the boldness to approach this ruler, this government official, and say, you need to repent of the sin. And as you probably heard the story, What ended up happening to John in the end? His head was served on a platter at the request of these sinners. But he was arrested first for simply taking a stand. After John's arrest, Mark says that Jesus came into Galilee. This is the stage. This is where Jesus would conduct most of his public ministry. This was the theater for his ministry. Galilee was the northernmost region of Palestine. It was the most populated. It housed the largest influx of Gentiles. It was the region most removed away from Jerusalem and the dead religion of first century Judaism. It was here in Galilee, in his home region, where Jesus would be the most visible It's where he would find the largest crowds to preach to. And it was in Galilee where he first called his disciples, where he walked on water, where he calmed the storm. It was in Galilee where he preached the best sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, which began with the Beatitudes and ended with a call to true faith and salvation. As you can see clearly, Calvary was not the only place Jesus visited. It was in Galilee where Jesus the Nazarene left his mark on the world. Before he went to the cross, bloody and broken, to be crushed to die in your place, he spent the bulk of his time preaching. Now back to verse 14. 
He went to Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Now, this is the same word in verse 7 that I've already explained to you. Just to review, it simply means heralding. It simply means proclaiming, publicly announcing. You've got to picture a herald being sent by a king to deliver a message to the subjects. It is a voice lifted up in public with authority. Notice that it does not say that Jesus went into Galilee teaching or feeding or helping or healing. He went preaching. It is in the present tense, which means it is an action performed without ceasing. It wasn't something he did once or twice or three times. It's something that he did ongoingly. And now here's something that you must understand about the work of preaching in general. If the message is from a sovereign king, then it carries with it binding permanent authority. So if the message that Jesus preached is divine, then it is supreme and universal. It's a message to be heard and responded to. And by way of application, which we will delve more into in the end of the message, when a man preaches the word of God, it must carry with it an authoritative tone because it is divine. It's not from humans. Human doctrine has no binding authority because man is not the creator and judge. Since only God is the creator and judge, it's only when a man stands up and proclaims God's message does it carry supreme authority. One of my favorite preachers always says a pastor has no authority except when he's speaking the word of God. But if he is speaking the word of God, then you must submit to it. So to be clear, it is absolutely appropriate for preachers and evangelists to come across strong. It is appropriate to come across bold and authoritative when they are preaching the doctrine of God and the gospel of God. The gospel of God, it's the truth that comes from God himself. It originates from God. It's the truth concerning the salvation from sin and judgment that is available only through Jesus Christ. And I make this point because oftentimes I hear Christians criticize pastors for sounding so bold, for sounding so authoritative. It's because they don't understand preaching. Preaching is simply heralding a message from the sovereign king. And if you claim to be a Christ follower, you are a subject of the king. So listen to his heralds. Now, for the remainder of this exposition this morning, I want to show you how Jesus preached. What was his message? And what does that mean for us? We have just been informed that the sum of Jesus' ministry, which is the title of the message today, the sum of Jesus' ministry, was preaching. But how did he conduct his preaching ministry? Well, in Mark 1.15, the evangelist reveals two components of Jesus' 
a preaching ministry, two components of Jesus' ministry, which served as a model for every true preacher and evangelist in the church age. They serve as a model. As we see in Jesus' preaching, true biblical preaching entails the giving or presenting of information or facts and then commanding or demanding change. It's also been called the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is just giving the truth, plain and simple. Telling you something that's true and factual. Then a, a command to act on it. So look at this first component, presenting information. What information did Jesus Christ present to his hearers? Let's look at it. Look in your Bible, Mark 1, 15. Jesus begins with, the time is fulfilled. Now, what time? You come to this text, and hopefully that's the first question you ask. What time does he refer to? Well, it's a time that would mark a turning point in salvation history. It's a fixed point in history that would begin a new dispensation. It is a new and better covenant. It is the time for the earth to receive her king. Jesus was stating a fact, a statement, an authoritative and universal truth. He was saying, in effect, I am your king and I am the fulfillment of God's prophecy. And my appearance is taking place according to God's sovereign timetable. So to every believing Jew, Jesus was what they were waiting for. The time had come. They were awaiting a Savior to come and to pay in full the penalty for sin and provide salvation for the elect. They awaited a Messiah to come and to rule by establishing His kingdom. And that time had arrived. But the kingdom that Jesus brought with Him in His first appearance was not a literal, physical, military, or even eternal kingdom. It was a kingdom of salvation. The world was about to realize. Now, if you look back in your Bibles in verse 15, the text goes on to say that the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay? The time has come and the kingdom is here. What kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? Now, before we answer that question, you have to understand that God's kingdom needs to be understood in three dimensions. As a spiritual kingdom, as a millennial kingdom, and as an eternal kingdom. The spiritual kingdom is the dimension that Jesus inaugurated as his first coming, which is what he's preaching about in verse 15. More on that in a minute. The millennial kingdom will one day be manifest as a physical, earthly kingdom. At his second coming, the king will establish his kingdom in a visible and temporal way on earth. According to Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, that kingdom will last for a thousand years. And during that time, all of the millennial promises of the Old Testament will be literally fulfilled 
And Jesus Christ will reign as king in Jerusalem, and the entire world will be under his rule. The eternal kingdom is the final kingdom. This kingdom will be a newly created heaven and earth, where the triune God will reign forever and ever. Revelation 20, 22, verses 1 to 5. Now, Jesus' mention of the kingdom of God in our text this morning is not a reference to the future millennium, nor is it a reference to the eternal state, simply because, listen, he proclaimed it is at hand, which means now. The kingdom is now. Now, in the present age, the kingdom is a present reality in the sense that Christ sits at the right hand of God and as I speak, rules over and is resident in the hearts of those who belong to him. In the present, the kingdom consists of all those who embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. Now it is a spiritual kingdom. Jesus came, he said that my kingdom is not of this world. He came to advance a kingdom one soul at a time. And it will continue until he returns to establish his earthly reign, followed by his eternal reign. So, here's the information. Here are the facts. Now, What do you do with that information? So what? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now what? What do I do? How do I respond? How will the king find me? Will he approve? Will he allow me to live and serve in this kingdom? Or as a king has authority to do, would he cast me out? Will this sovereign king rescue me out of the kingdom of darkness from the tyranny of Satan? Will this king come and see that I'm a rebel and give me a royal pardon? How may I be prepared for the arrival of this king and the inauguration of this new kingdom? So glad you guys asked. We find the answer to those vital questions in the second component of Jesus' primary preaching ministry. His preaching began with the information, but it ends with demanding change. True biblical preaching starts with the indicative, the information, the matter of fact, then, therefore, the kingdom of God is here Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. These two conditions are necessary for you and every single person that ever lived to meet in order to be a recipient of God's love. To be a recipient of God's love, you must repent. Repent. 
and believe. To be a subject in God's present and future kingdom, you must repent and believe. These conditions are so fundamental, so simple, so elementary, so basic, so central to everything we confess, yet so many Christians cannot even define them. And if they do, really do I hear them preached? Are you one of those Christians? Are you one of those professing Christians who could not articulate the doctrine of repentance? Well, pay attention and find out. Before I explain biblical repentance and faith, I must point out a couple important observations here. In this verse, both verbs are in the imperative mood, which means they are commands. They are charges to the hearer to carry out. They are directives to perform a certain action. So listen to this. Implication is this. For anyone who fails to repent, it is sin. The gospel is not an invitation. And the unbeliever is sinning every nanosecond of every day when he does not repent. Let that sink in. Another observation that I want you to note is the word order. Look in your Bible. Repent and believe. Repent is first. Faith is second. And that's significant because it's a reminder to us who live in a culture where repentance is forgotten or outright ignored. Faith is talked about ad nauseum. Because that's not offensive. People don't mind talking about their personal faith. Right? Christian churches don't mind encouraging you to believe. Just, just believe in Jesus. But very few preachers and evangelists and Christians will say, if you don't repent, your faith is worthless. And that's offensive. To say that you must change in order to be accepted by Christ, that's offensive. But Jesus himself preached this. You see it? I don't want you to think I'm making this up. He preached it. He said, sinners, repent, then believe. Now, this term, repent, most of you have been taught that it simply means to make a 180-degree turnaround. Most of you have been taught that it just means to turn away from sin, and that's not incorrect. It's just insufficient. The Greek term rendered repent is a compound word from meta, denoting change, and noeo, which means think. So biblical repentance precisely defined is to experience a change of the mind or a change in thinking. Theologically, it involves having a change in how you think about your sin and standing before a holy God. 
when a sinner truly repents, he or she changes in this way. He goes from feeling proud about his sin to feeling true, genuine regret and sorrow for offending the God who made him. He goes from presuming upon the love, grace, and mercy of God to knowing that he deserves to die. He goes from thinking that he could save himself by how good he is to emphatically proclaiming, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I claim. That's repentance. Notice that repentance is purely an inner work. It has nothing at all to do with outer work. And so I I make that point because there is a difference between penance and repentance. Repentance is biblical. It's an essential condition for salvation. Penance is a false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that says you must do certain religious works to earn favor with God. The best illustration of experiencing genuine change of the mind is... Anybody want to take a guess? I'm really asking you guys this time. Anybody? What biblical picture or what biblical story or biblical passage would best illustrate this doctrine of repentance? The prodigal son. So, please, if you have your Bible, turn there. Turn to Luke 15. I want to show you an illustration of true biblical repentance. Now, the story or parable of the prodigal son, I think, without question, is probably the most popular. I mean, even unbelievers who have never sat under Bible teaching have heard of the story, right? That's good because it's, you know, from the Scripture, but it's bad because, you know, it's typically misinterpreted misapplied. So I want to show you how this is such an awesome illustration of sound repentance. Luke 15, verse 11 begins, And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Now stop right there. This demand from a young son to his father was synonymous to this. Father, I wish you were dead. Because as long as you're alive, I don't get my money. So give it to me now. And I'll pretend you're dead. So graciously, the father didn't have to, but the text goes on to say uh, he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, verse 13, the younger son gathered everything together. That means he liquidated all the assets. And he went on a journey into a distant country where he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, that's just another way of saying wasteful debauchery. 
Verse 30 reveals that he devoured his wealth with prostitutes. So maybe a contemporary application today would be, would be some rich yuppie gets his inheritance and he goes off to Vegas. And he squanders it in bars and strip clubs and prostitutes and casinos. And all of a sudden, the party's over. He finds himself on the street. Just like this man. Let's, let's continue to find out where he ended up. Verse 14, now he had spent everything. He was broke. A severe famine occurred in that country. Wow. And he began to be impoverished. He was starving. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. Now, as a good exegete, this statement should shock you. Because if you were one of Jesus' original hearers, a Jew, you would have known that pigs were the worst sort of unclean animals. And so for a Jew to be forced to work among filthy swine was unthinkable and was offensive. But just when you think it couldn't get any worse for this young man, verse 16 says he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine are eating. Now these pods, they were used to feed pigs, and they were basically indigestible for humans. So the only reason why he did not eat them is because he couldn't. Have you ever been so hungry that you would have eaten dog food or something like that if you had to? Have you ever been so hungry where you would eat something that you normally wouldn't? Most of us probably have. He was at the point where he was starving, but... The only food that he could even find, he couldn't eat. So to review, this young man is penniless. He's humiliated. He's starving. And just when you think it couldn't get any worse, verse 16 continues, and no one was giving him anything. He couldn't even, he couldn't even get by with begging. He had truly arrived. To the bottom of the barrel, so to speak. His situation could hardly have been more desperate. He was in utter helpless despair. So, at his wit's end, what does he do? Verse 17. But when he came to his senses, brothers and sisters, that's repentance. That's the change of the mind. And what follows is the outworking or evidence of true biblical repentance. This is how we know it was real repentance. He didn't get up and say, I made a mistake. You know, I'll just keep driving on. I made a mistake. I've got to forgive myself. Let me just keep doing what I'm doing. You know, I messed up, but, you know, my dad can't be mad at me. He's my dad. No. This is shocking. He said, 
how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up. And I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. That's the first indication of general repentance. This confession proved that the son finally understood the seriousness of his sin, the weightiness, the gravitas of his sin. And he finally admitted that he had sinned against God and sinned against his father. Not only that, there's more to repentance than that. Confession and then humility. Verse 19. This son says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. In other words, he went from thinking that he deserved everything to thinking he deserved nothing. He had no more pride left. Brothers and sisters, listen. If you're in Christ, you were that prodigal son. Every single one of you. The son in this parable symbolizes you and I as the proud, rebellious sinner squandering life away in the muck and mire of sinful self-indulgence. And so God calls us to come to our senses and see our sinfulness and our need for salvation. But many people never come to their senses. They live their whole lives among the swine and never experience God's forgiveness. But for those whom God grants the gift of repentance, and it is a gift, for those who confess, God, I am a sinner, I do not deserve to be your child. You guys remember how the story ends. In fact, it's one of the very few stories in the Bible that make me almost want to weep. He sees the son running towards me, open his arms, and he throws a big party. Symbolizing that God is a loving father who welcomes repentant sinners into his presence. And then there is rejoicing when that happens. But you must repent. Or Jesus says in Luke 13, you will perish. And so if you've never thought to yourself, I am a great sinner, helpless, bankrupt, and starving, and I deserve nothing but eternal punishment, then listen, you have never repented. And if you have never repented, then I must warn you because I love you. You are lost. And you will be condemned. If you've never repented, had a change of mind about your natural sinful condition and how your sin puts you in a wrong stand with God, then repent now. The kingdom of God is at hand now. But as we see in the text, genuine repentance is not enough. 
It's not enough to obtain salvation in Christ. Look what he says next. The second command, the second demand for change, believe in the gospel. Now, to believe is not some generic, mystical, blurred, or unsure affirmation. It is not definitely a mere intellectual or historical assent. That's dead faith. Faith, belief, means to trust. It means to rest upon. To place confidence in. To wholeheartedly commit. That's faith. That's belief. Now, think of yourself being on an airplane. Now, I, I, I hesitate to use this illustration because I'm going to get on an airplane soon. But I think you'll get it. It's the best illustration I've ever heard to explain biblical faith. Picture yourself, you're on a big airplane, sipping your coffee, and suddenly you hear the captain's voice over the intercom saying these words. Attention passengers, we've just discovered that we have a mass fuel leak and we're losing fuel at an alarming, rapid rate. In a matter of minutes, we won't have enough fuel left to safely descend 30,000 feet in land. Therefore, I am urging you now to take the parachute from under your seat, tightly secure it to your person, prepare to exit the aircraft immediately. The flight attendants are on their way and will be opening the cabin doors momentarily so that you could, in a calm and collective manner, (laughs) vacate the aircraft. Thank you for choosing our airline. Have a nice day. Now, in that situation, anyone in their right mind would be absolutely terrified. Would you not be? But in a moment, as soon as you were convinced that the captain was telling the truth, every passenger on that aircraft would have to respond. If they wanted to die, which I've never met anybody who really truly wants to die, They would simply ignore the captain's warning and just sit there drinking their coffee. But if they wanted to live, you guys want to live, right? If you wanted to live, they would act fast and they would quickly take hold of the only life-saving device available to them. And they would put it on and they would trust that the parachute would land them safely on the ground below. And the ones who muster enough courage to leap out the door, rather than go down with the plane, would need to have complete trust in the parachute. The Lord Jesus Christ is like that parachute. Who promises to save you from imminent death. Every man, woman, and child must trust Jesus like a skydiver trusts in the parachute if they wish to be saved from the death that has us all gripped due to sin. Now, just like all illustrations, they fall short in helping you perfectly understand our infinite God. Because let's face it, I was in the army. Parachutes fail. 
They don't always work. But Jesus does not fail. He is infallible. He never fails. He will always save those whom put him on. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you might be saved, will be saved. Because our God is a God of truth and goodness and kindness and mercy and grace. He's immutable. We can trust that we don't have to die. If we put Jesus on. This kind of belief is not vague. It's not cloudy. It's not blind faith. It's a wholehearted embrace of the real living person and finished sufficient work of Jesus Christ. Which is the totality of this gospel. Mark ends this text in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel gospel, as you know, is good news. It's a joyful announcement. But I want you to zero in on that little word, the. That's called the definite article. Mark wants us to know that the good news that Jesus preached was the only way. Just like the only way you were going to survive a plane crash is if you jump out with enough time with a parachute to land safely. Jesus is the only way that you will be safe from the wrath to come and from death. There is one gospel. There's not two or three or several. Jesus was not interested in ecumenical gatherings to discuss, to have an open and a discussion about how a man can be saved. No. He commanded people to believe in the gospel. He was consumed, primarily focused on preaching that message by presenting the facts, the information, and then demanding change. That, brothers and sisters, is biblical preaching. Biblical preaching that claims to be preaching that does not have those two components is insufficient preaching. Preachers who focus only on the facts. They're no longer preaching. They're what? They're teaching. The ones who focus only on application. They're not biblical preachers. They're motivational speakers. This was the sum of his ministry. He told his hearers about the eternal kingdom of God. The sphere of forgiveness and redemption. And then he commanded them to repent of their sin and believe in him as Lord and Savior. Now, I don't know about you, but this message could not be any clearer, can it? It's so simple. Yet we have many, many, countless that make it convoluted. We have many, countless, who think it's boring, who think it's powerless, who think it's too offensive. 
if we're going to be faithful to Christ, we must stand and proclaim the kingdom of God is now repent and believe. This is what every preacher is called to do. We are not called to analyze the culture, to give politically charged speeches, to design new gimmicks, to persuade worldly audiences. No. It is to proclaim the same message that Jesus Christ preached. And guess what? It's the same for you. And your mission to make disciples, share this. Be primarily preoccupied with declaring to those whom God brings in your influence. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this clear revelation. Thank you that you have sent Christ to preach to warn the world that the kingdom is come and that the proper response is to repent and believe. Thank you, Lord, for sending evangelists into our lives to tell us this chief important truth. Thank you for giving us the gift of faith and repentance, Lord. Please give us more clarity in our thinking. Give us more zeal to be committed to this and not other things that may distract us from what you would have us do. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of salvation.